All right, this is going to expose a communication problem between Blake and I. I don't know that it's a problem, but Blake, I got to know. Did you like read like Ecclesiastes 3? Are you kidding me? No, I'm, I'm exposing the spirit of God's work is what I'm exposing. I'm like, are you kidding me? That, I mean, it, what you prayed, Blake, right there is like you were reading my notes. I'm like, whoa. Do, 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 do. Seriously, I mean, that was a really cool, from my perspective, I'm standing in the back going, okay, I, how did he see my notes? He, he had not see my notes. I just printed my notes. How did he see my notes? How does he know to pray exactly what I'm going to be preaching on, exactly what this passage is all about? Oh, he must have read the passage. He must have thought ahead. It's the Spirit of God, right? So that's really cool. That happens a lot, guys. It really does. And, and um, you know, we joke about this, that Blake, Adam, and I see each other once a week at our staff meeting, and the rest of the time we're busy doing ministry. And uh, we just show up on Sunday, and, like, we just, like, we don't even say hi. It's just like we pass going up and down from the stage, you know, and uh, it's just neat to see how the Spirit of God just brings together uh, our services with the prayers and the music and the, 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 the passages that we're going through. And that just, it just gives me great confidence that this is not about us, that God is up to something good, right? This is way bigger than us. And uh, he just gives us the joy and the privilege of, of being a part of his work. Uh, here at Lakeside. And so, anyway, take your Bibles to turn uh, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 with great anticipation now in light of what the Spirit of God is already doing here through our music and um, I think what He wants to do in our lives through this chapter, chapter 3. Now, before we get into this chapter, I want to ask you, how many of you have seen the classic film, It's a Wonderful Life? Everybody should raise your hand. You, you, you haven't... Dude, dude, are you kidding me? All right, you're coming over to my house Christmas Eve, and we're watching it, okay? It's a wonderful life. Um, probably one of the most beloved movies of all time, and it is kind of a tradition now, right, to show it, the TV networks show it on Christmas Eve. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar, this is all for John Mock, okay? This is for you, buddy, because you don't have a clue, man, so I'm going to tell you about It's a Wonderful Life. Right? It's a, it's a quaint story of a guy named, come on you cult classics, George Bailey, right? George Bailey, you guys remember that guy? He grew up in the small town of, you guys have seen it, you may need to see it again apparently, Bedford Falls, okay, right? Bedford Falls. And he has dreams of traveling the world, but due to a series of unexpected tragedies and the inequities of life, he is kept from ever being able to leave his hometown. And he experiences one difficulty and one disappointment after another and repeatedly sacrifices his own dreams of a better life to serve the needs of others. His father dies, leaving him to run his modest building and home loan association, which is vital to the townspeople of Bedford Falls. Mr. Potter, right? That's when you hiss. He's the He's the bad guy. Mr. Potter, this hot, heartless slumlord and majority shareholder in the building and loan who wants to take over Bedford Falls, tries everything to put George out of business. When his brother, younger brother Harry, graduates from college, rather than taking over the family business like they had agreed, he gets married and takes another job uh, with his uh, wife's father. And uh, 
when uh, George and his wife finally get married, um, they're departing for their honeymoon. And there's this run on the bank, and so the couple calms the panicked customers by donating the $2,000 they'd set aside for the honeymoon. And they end up doing a little honeymoon right in their old uh, house that they hadn't even built yet or haven't even uh, uh, remodeled yet. Well, when the war erupts, World War II, George is unable to enlist because he has uh, a bad ear. He lost his hearing in one ear at the age of 12 while rescuing his younger brother, Harry, who had fallen through the ice. And uh, it's drama, dude. It's like plot. It's all over the place, okay? Uh, then, and at the same time, so Harry becomes this fighter pilot in World War II, shoots down 15 enemy planes, and he's awarded this Medal of Honor, right? Um, on Christmas morning, this is when it gets ugly, Uncle Billy, right, who has the trouble with drinking, right? He's on his way to the Potter's Bank to deposit the building and loans money, $8,000 worth, and he inadvertently allows the money to fall into Potter's hands, who keeps it knowing, knowing that it's going to bankrupt the building and loan, exactly what he'd always wanted. And so George comes to Potter and pleads for a loan, but gets turned down, and Potter presses charges against him for bank fraud. And this is the whole point of the movie, right? What does he do then? He goes to the bar, gets drunk, right? Completely depressed, completely disillusioned with his life. He crashes his car into a tree. He staggers to a bridge, intending to commit suicide, feeling that he's, he's worth more dead than alive. And before he can jump off that bridge, there's a splash in the water. And a second-rate angel named Clarence, who is trying desperately to earn his wings. See what you're missing, John? I mean, this is a good story. <laughs> he, he dives into the water and uh, pretends he's drowning. So George jumps in to, as he always did, always thinking about other people before himself, right? He jumps in and rescues the guy out of the, the icy waters. Well, Clarence, they get back and they're drying off. And Clarence introduces himself as George's guardian angel. <laughs> and George laughs. And... And yet this guy, Clarence, proceeds to show him what life would be like if he had never been born. And uh, so he goes through and he shows him what, his li- what, what life would be like had he not lived the life that he lived. And what he sees is that his beloved Bedford Falls was named Pottersville, right? His home, and it was, a, um, it was a place of sleazy nightclubs, pawn shops, Bailey Park, the uh, affordable housing project that he built, was no longer there. Mr. Gower, the pharmacist who George worked for as a boy, was sent to prison for poisoning a child because George wasn't there to catch the mistake that he made prescribing the boy's medication. George's friend Violet now is a strip dancer, and she gets arrested as a pickpocket. Uh, Ernie, the cab driver, is helplessly poor without his family. They've all left him. Uncle Billy is in an insane asylum for years since he lost his brother in his business. Harry is dead as a result of George not being there to save him from drowning in that lake. And the servicemen that Harry would have saved in the army when he shot down those planes, they also died. His mother is a bitter widow, and his wife Mary is a single spinster librarian. Well, after having his life flash before him, or maybe his unlife, right, flash before him, George runs back to the bridge and he begs to be allowed to live again. 
And his prayer is answered, and he runs home joyously where the authorities are waiting there to arrest him, and, and yet everybody else is there. Mary's there, his wife, and Uncle Billy, and the, all the townspeople were there, uh, and they all donated enough money to save George in the building and loan. And even his little brother, Harry, comes to support his brother and all he did for him, and he toasts George as the richest man in town. And with all his family and friends surrounding him, one of his little girls in his arms, that's when George realizes that he truly has a what? Wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Even though it wasn't the life that you had dreamed of, right? Even though it's not the life you planned on, that you had hoped for, it was still a wonderful life. How about your life? Is it really that wonderful Someone may have convinced you at one point that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you bought into that. And uh, while that is true, you probably have already realized that God's wonderful plan is not necessarily your plan for your life. I would imagine that some of you, um, your life may not have worked out like you had hoped, or it's not working out the way you had planned, or dreamed of. Yeah. And what God has chosen for your life and what, what you are going through in your life may not be what you would have chosen to go through in life, right? Another understatement. You would have never chosen this. For example, small example, in light of the bigger scheme of much greater problems, we would have never chosen diabetes for one of our kids. That's not anything we would have signed up for. It's not anything we would have chosen as, as God's plan for our lives. And yet we know it's all part of God's plan for our lives, is it not? Everything happens for a reason. Things don't just happen. There's no random events. There's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as coincidence. God sovereignly ordains everything that happens in the universe and providentially orchestrates everything that happens in our lives. Let me say that again. That's a very critical biblical truth to hold on to, that God sovereignly ordains everything that happens in the universe and providentially orchestrates everything that happens in our lives. So everything somehow plays a part in God's grand design to bring himself glory and to work good in our lives. Romans 8, 28. For God works all things together for good, right? To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say God works all good things together for good. He says he works all things, even bad things, for good. And so you hear people say things like, you know, it's all part of God's plan. Everything happens for a purpose. You've probably said those things. Now, are these just pious platitudes that we say to make ourselves feel better when we don't know what else to say, when we encounter difficult, disappointing things in our lives? Oh, it's all part of God's plan. Everything happens for a purpose. I mean, are we just duped by some silly little spiritual phrases that we picked up in church over the years? I don't think so. I think those phrases, it's all part of God's plan, everything happens for a purpose, they are based on what we know to be true, not only from God's word, but also in our hearts. God put this in our hearts. God has placed in every human heart a sense that there is more to life 
than what we experience here on this earth. That, that God has this vast eternal plan that he's working out for his glory and our good. And that plan includes not just the positive things of life, but also the negative things of life. And if it were up to us, we would never choose to experience the negative things in life. We would never choose to experience anything unpleasant or painful in life. How about you? I wouldn't sign up for that. However, that kind of life, while it sounds wonderful, would not be a wonderful life. No pain, right? No unpleasantness, just pleasure, everything's positive. That kind of life, while it may sound wonderful, would end up being very monotonous and meaningless. Do you ever think about what a piano would sound like without the black keys? The black keys, right? The black keys play all the what? The sharps, right? And the flats. And by themselves, you just play on the black keys and you're like, ooh, ah. You know, it's just, it sounds harsh. It sounds dissonant. It doesn't sound right. But neither does it sound right if a song is played with just the white keys. It's just bland. It's, there's, there's no rhythm. And so imagine life without any black keys, without any pain, without any problems. And see, God is the master conductor, and he knew that to provide us with a wonderful life, he couldn't leave out the black keys. It needed to include the black keys. And so as we return to our study of Ecclesiastes tonight, we're going to see that life truly is wonderful, not in spite of the problems and the pain we face in life, but because of the pain and the problems that we face in life. And once again, while Ecclesiastes may appear on the service to be very gloomy, very pessimistic in its perspective on life, it's really a celebration of how wonderful life really is. God wants us to enjoy life. We've been talking about that uh, ever since we began this. And uh, if you remember from last week, I handed out this little, um, this little outline. Some of you still probably have it tucked away there in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. But uh, what we're going to be doing tonight is we're going to be moving on to the second section of the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1 and 2 are the first section where basically Solomon declares the problem. He states the problem. And now in chapters 3 through chapters 10, he discusses the problem. He unpacks the problem. And then in chapters 11 and 12, he decides the problem. In other words, he draws his conclusions. But the thing that I pointed out in this outline that that there are six times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes where basically uh, Solomon says the same exact thing, and he basically says, enjoy the gift of life. Enjoy the gift of life. Enjoy life as a gift from God. Enjoy life as a gift from God. He says it in, in different ways. But six times he, he has these what some would call carpe diem, right, expressions where you just seize the day, right? You, you just enjoy life. You, take, you grab life by the tail and just live it up. And that's basically, I think, the underlying message of this book. It's not, oh, life is just a miserable place, you know, and uh, you know, go, go out and kill yourself, right? Um, because that's what some people would say this book is all about. Like, I don't want anything to do with Ecclesiastes. Man, that's depressing, and uh, that's the exact opposite. It's all about enjoying the gift of life. And so let's look 
tonight at this chapter 3, and it's coming off the heels, coming on the heels of chapter 2, where last week we looked at the things that um, Solomon tried to find lasting enjoyment and fulfillment in life. He was looking to enjoy life. He was like, hey, what, what, what's life all about? I want to enjoy life. I want to live it to the hill. I want to live it to the max. And so he looked to find satisfaction and fulfillment in things like education and folly and fun and drinking and eating and building things and acquiring things and uh, sex and reputation, um, even his profession, his occupation, even in being generous and giving away things to other people. And none of these things, he says, will ever provide lasting enjoyment and fulfillment in life. And so he moves, uh, really, he, he, chapter uh, 2, verse 24, is, is really the point here. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good, that also I've seen that is from the hand of God, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? In other words, you can't enjoy life apart from God. And you say, well, what are you talking I got everything I ever wanted in life, and, and I still don't enjoy it. You, you know why? Because you don't have God. You say, well, I do have God. And uh, I have a lot of neat things in life, and I still don't enjoy it. Well, that's because you forgot. You're trying to find your happiness and satisfaction in the things rather than God, right? So the only way you can be happy and enjoy life is, is with God. God enables us to enjoy the things that we have. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. And then we come to chapter 3, where he expands on what he learned as a result of this great experiment, right, that he began in chapter 1, verse 12, when he says, verse 13, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. So this grand experiment to find meaning and happiness in the things of this world, and after all the searching and after all the musing, the thinking, he realized there was a predetermined plan for his life that he could not explain and he could not change. Now that could have ended in, in, a, in, a, in a, bad, a bad day for Solomon, right? When you, when you realize that, that God has a predetermined plan for your life that you cannot explain and you cannot change... You're like, well, what's the point of life? You can be very fatalistic at that point, right? But rather than seeing life fatalistically as a prison to endure, Solomon learned to see life as a gift to enjoy. And the key to enjoying life is to live in awe of the one who created us and controls every detail of our lives. That's the point of chapter 3. The key to enjoying life is to live in awe of the one who created us and controls every detail of our lives. And it always comes down to perspective, does it not? I mean, is life a prison to endure or is life to be a gift to enjoy? What is it? It really comes down to your perspective on life, doesn't it? Some of you feel like you're in a prison. And, uh, and, and God's just saying, hey, listen, <laughs> based on the book of Ecclesiastes, that it's your own fault. It's your own fault if you view life as a prison, that you're just enduring. Because I gave you life, God gave you life to enjoy. And so in this chapter, Solomon encourages us to, to view life from three perspectives. Three perspectives 
in order to keep our lives from becoming meaningless and unmanageable, right? So how, you want your life to be meaningful, you want it to be manageable, you want to be able to manage life. Uh, life's, life's a challenge to manage, isn't it? And I'm not talking about just getting through every day. I'm just talking about managing life in your mind, in your heart. How, what am I to think about life? Especially when things aren't going the way I planned them to. Especially when I'm not, when I'm, I'm feeling a lot like George Bailey, right? Where my life is not a wonderful life, it's a horrible life. Well, how are we to think to get us out of that funk, if you will, that fatalistic funk of, man, my life just stinks. Man, I, I, it's a horrible life. Well, three perspectives. Number one, we need to look up, okay? Look up at the sovereignty of God. That's verses one through eight. Number two, we need to look within at the eternity in our hearts. And number three, we need to look ahead at the certainty of death. That's verses 16 through 22. So let's look at these three perspectives. First of all, we need to look up at the sovereignty of God. And here we have probably the most familiar section of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you didn't know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes until we started this study, I guarantee you, you knew this section. You knew verses 1 through 8. You've heard it before. It's probably one of the most well-known poetic pieces, not just in Scripture, but in literature, uh, in the history of literature. Uh, you don't even have to be a, a Christian to know this passage. I mean, all you had to know is, is if you were like a, a groupie back in the 60s, right? And you listened to the birds. Anybody listen to the birds back in the, I wasn't even alive, but the birds, people are kind of, they're coming back now. The birds, Blake probably listens to the birds because he's like cool retro and stuff. Anyway, the birds sang that song. You've heard the song, turn, 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 right? It's, it's a direct quote from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 through 8. They just ripped it off from Scripture, that classic song. Well, let's read it. Verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. And so Solomon concluded that everything that happens to us in life happens at just the right time, and God has a purpose for it all, that everything happens for a reason, right? And he goes on to list everything that could possibly happen to someone during their lifetime, both good and bad, both pleasant and painful. Notice verse 2, a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. That's biblical mandate for garage sales, just so you know. Verse 7, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. It's a profound list, is it not? But basically Solomon's list here encompasses the day of our birth, and the day of our breath, and everything that happens in between. I mean, this is a, a poetic way to suggest the totality of life. that you just We just read, that's life right there. That's life here on this earth. That, that describes all of our lives. 
And, and Solomon uh, made this list of, of basically polar opposites. Um, someone called this a poem of polarity, right? You've got 14 positive things matched up with 14 negative things, and these 28 things total are intended to symbolize the entirety of life, that, that God's plan encompasses all these things. And just you just read this, and you just notice the rhythm of life alternating back and forth between the white keys and the black keys, right? As the, 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 the orchestra of our life is being played, there's birth, there's death, there's wedding receptions, there's funeral processions, there's, there's, there's comedy, there's tragedy, there's killing, there's healing, there's loving, there's hating. And no one can escape the hurts and the pains of life. You're like, hey, just give me half the list, right? I only want half, I want those positive things. No, you can't escape the, the, the negatives, because that's just how God ordained life to be. In a fallen world, in a sinful world, there will be times of sorrow, there will be times of weeping, but there will also be other times that are happy and carefree and filled with joy and laughter. And through all the ups and downs of life, the good times and the bad times, God is accomplishing His divine purposes even though His ways are oftentimes inscrutable. In other words, we can't figure out what in the world is God doing in this. And sometimes the only thing that gets us through hard times is knowing that this too shall pass. This too shall pass. I mean, sometimes you're in a, you're in a dark pit, right? You're, you're bummed out. You're depressed because of something that's going on in your life. And, and sometimes the only ray of hope you have is, you know what? I know based on Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time for everything. There's a time to be in the pit, right? And there's a time to be on the mountaintop. And thankfully... Life's not about, all about being on the pit, in the pit, right, for 65, 70 years, and it's not about, all about being on the mountaintop for 65, 70 years. There's a little of both, right? And so you just need to get used to it. And, 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 and don't get too bummed out when you're in the pit, and don't get too excited when you're on the mountaintop, right? Because the more excited you are on the mountaintop, the more depressed you'll be in the pit, right, in the valley. And so... Kind of like the weather in Houston. If you don't like it, just wait a few minutes, right? You don't like what's going on in your life right now? Just wait a few minutes. Because it's the cycle. It's the rhythm of life, right? And there may be a, a, a dark key being played right now in your life. But guess what? There, just one, one, one hand length away is a white key, right? And God's playing the, play, playing the song, right? And, and right now he may be having all his hands on the black keys in your life. And you're going, whoa, God, can you let up a little bit, right? Well, don't worry. He's going to get to the white keys again at some point, right? This too shall pass. And so in the same way God controls the weather here in Houston, he controls the times and the seasons of our lives from the moment we're born until the moment that we die. And the entire time he is seeking to accomplish his will in our lives. And if we cooperate with what he ordains for us and when he ordains it, sometimes that's the harder part, right? Lord, are you, are you serious? Are you serious? Again, another trial? right on the heels of this other one I just got through or right on top of the one I'm presently dealing with, right? Um, but when we cooperate with what God ordains for us and when he ordains it, we will realize what a beautiful thing that life can be. We can enjoy life rather than just having to endure life. And one of the reasons why some of us endure life, our life could be... Um, 
described more as enduring rather than enjoying, right? And that's the question to ask yourself. How would you describe your life? Are you enduring life or are you enjoying life? Well, I think the people that are merely enduring life are the ones that are not cooperating with what God ordains or when He ordains. They're, they're resisting that. They're fighting against that instead of submitting to that. And the point is this, that God always seems to balance out the blessings and the burdens in our lives, right? The hills and the valleys, right? They come and go, and it seems that He blends just enough blessing to keep us encouraged along with just enough burdens to keep us humble and dependent on Him. Have you experienced that in your life? Right? I mean, that's just the way it always is. There's always something to be encouraged by, and there's usually something to be discouraged by, right? Something to be excited about and something to be depressed about, right? They're just, just, and God just does that in His sovereignty. He just blends these things together, and it's, it's almost as if they're going on at the same exact time. And one moment you're laughing, and the next moment you're crying, Right? I mean, that's life. And, and sometimes you can't even separate these things because they're happening so closely together. And so the first thing, the first perspective here that, that Solomon encourages us to have is we need to look up at the sovereignty of God and not go, man, why is my life such a, a wreck? Why, why do I have all these bad things happening to me? Well, guess what? That's part of life. And, and oh, by the way, maybe, maybe you haven't noticed but there isn't only just bad things happening in your life. That's just what you're choosing to focus on, right? You just choose to focus on the bad things because you, you've lost sight of all the good things because I guarantee you there's both going on in your life. It's just a matter of your perspective, right? And what you choose to focus on. What's the second perspective? Second perspective is not only to look up at the sovereignty of God, we need to look within at the eternity in our hearts Look within at the eternity in our hearts. Notice verse 9. What profit is there to the worker from that, which, from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. It's interesting. He's going back to the, hey, so what's the point of life, right? I mean, from a human perspective, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? In other words, he's basically saying, hey, in light of verses 1 through 8 and these 14 polar opposites, okay, um, do the math. 14 positives, 14 negatives, do the math. What do you get? Zero. You get zero, right? They cancel each other out and you, the net result is zero. So you have nothing to show for this at the end. Again, from a human perspective, right? Under the sun, without God in, in the picture. But notice, he says in verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. Uh, some translation says he has made everything what? Beautiful in its time. That it may be ugly right now, right? Whatever you're going through, whatever you're, it may be ugly right now. But in time, give it time, right? And God will make it beautiful. He says, he made everything appropriate in his time, everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So what does that mean? Well, when it says he set eternity in their heart, 
It means that while we live in a world of time uh, filled with all these joys and pains, sometimes simultaneous, right, experiences, that we instinctively know in our hearts that we'll live forever, that we realize there's, there's life beyond this life. There's, there's more to this life than this kind of crazy laughing, crying at the same time experience, right? This is all part of something else. And even though we can't fully figure out, that's what he says, he says you can't really figure it out, that yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end, even though we can't figure out God's master plan, his ways are higher than our ways, right? His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We know our lives are not pointless, but they have purpose and they have meaning. You don't have to figure out the master plan, right, to know that your life has meaning and purpose. You just have to figure out that there's a master, and he's got a plan, and you fit into it, and everything that's going on in your life, right, is part of his, his plan. And so through, through the ups and downs of life, um, we know in the depth of our being that there's more to this life than just living and dying, right? And, and we long to know how we got here. How did we get here, right? We're trying to figure out this master. Okay, I know there's, there, there's, there's, there's something, there's a, there's a big design here, right? There's, there's no way that this thing just kind of exploded one day, right, in the big bang, and all of a sudden out came a grandfather clock or a Rolex watch or out drove a, a, a Lexus, right? It doesn't happen. Explosions in, 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 um, in, in junkyards don't produce Lexuses. Explosions in clock factories don't, you know, right, create Rolexes. These things are, 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 they demonstrate design, wise design. So listen, so how did I get here? How did I get here? Why am I here? What what am I doing here? And where am I going? I mean, these are the ultimate questions of life, aren't they? Where'd you come from? Why are you here? Where are you going? You've all asked yourself those questions. Not because you're really smart, right? And thought, oh, I'm going to ask myself these questions. Guess what? God wired you to ask those questions. He wired us a certain way, put us on this planet, right? Wound us up, if you will, right? And, 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 and at some point, that thing's going to go off in our minds. We're going to ask ourselves that question. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? And again, God causes us to ask those questions. Why? Because he put eternity in our hearts. He put it there. And we're without excuse. You get to heaven and he says, right, you get to eternity. He says, hey, uh, you know, you say, oh, great, I'm going to heaven. He says, no, you're not. And he says, well, why not? Well, because, you know, um, you didn't honor me. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know you were there. God says, baloney, right? I put it in your heart. That even though they knew God, right, Romans 1, they did not thank him, honor God, or thank him. Um, and so we, we have no excuse. And once we realize that there's a God and everything is in his hands, guess what? That life starts to make a little more sense, right? Those questions start to begin getting answers. St. Augustine, in his confessions, famous confessions, said, Thou hast made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until we learn to rest in you, until we find our rest in you. C.S. Lewis, 
I like this. He said, Our Heavenly Father has provided us many delightful inns for us along our journey, but He takes great care to see that we do not mistake any of them for home. A lot of delightful experiences, right, that we can have in life. Little inns that we can stop off on on the journey, but He takes great care to see that we do not mistake any of them as home. Guess what? That's why your marriage isn't perfect. Seriously, that's one of those... I think God intended it to be a delightful end, something that you would enjoy in life, but there's times you're not enjoying your marriage. There's times you want out of your marriage, right? It's not delightful. It's anything but delightful. But instead of saying, well, okay, so I need to get a divorce or I need to get out of this marriage, no, that's just a simple reminder that this is not your home, right? God never intended you to find your happiness and your ultimate fulfillment and enjoyment in your marriage. It's a momentary marriage. It has greater purpose than than just your happiness. It's not only your holiness, right, to sanctify you, but also to show off Christ and his church, right? Ray Steadman says, there is a longing for home. There is a call deep in the human spirit for more than life can provide. This itch that we cannot scratch is also part of God's plan. So we we all got this itch, and we're like, Somebody help me with this. Can you get this? That's all part of God's plan. We walk through life with this itch, right? Verse 12, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Here we go again, right? This is the second time that Solomon brings us to this whole concept of, hey, life is a gift of God. Enjoy the gift that God has given you. You have a life. You're alive. That's something to get excited about. You're alive. You're not, like, non-existent. And you say, well, trust me, Ken, there's times when I wish I didn't exist, right? In fact, Solomon was there in chapter 4. Remember this, verse 3, or verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. That was George Bailey, right? On the bridge, wishing he had never existed. That's how bad life had gotten for him. Or more importantly, more, more, more accurately, he had lost perspective, right? He'd lost perspective. And so he wishes he, would, he wished he wasn't alive. That happens to people, doesn't it? But again, it's a loss of perspective. And so what Solomon is saying here is, listen, in light of eternity and life's uncertainty, the conclusion is, the best policy is, is just to be happy and enjoy life as much as possible. I mean, God's given you a life. Why wreck it by being you know, uh, an Eeyore, a sad sack, right? You go through life just, oh, my life stinks. Well, listen, if you want to use your life like that, it's your life, right? But why not enjoy it? Why not enjoy life? Well, you say, well, my life's, my life's not perfect like I want it to be. Get used to it, Right? Because it's not 
God never intended it to be perfect here on this earth, right? That's why there's heaven. And so the point is, he, he, verse 13, moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. He wasn't telling us just to go out and make our lives this drunken, you know, orgy, but simply that, that hey, listen, enjoy eating and drinking. It's, it's a gift from the Lord. You know, this whole let's be aesthetics and let's go off in a cave somewhere and like eat like one piece of, you know, dry, crusty bread and water and that's somehow more spiritual. Not according to God. God says, hey, I've given you all things to enjoy. Go out and eat that T-bone steak, right? Enjoy it. That's a gift from the Lord, right? Enjoy that stuff. You're like, now you're talking. I like the sermon now. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear Him. Oh, and there's the point. So all this is part of a, of a bigger plan, right? God is working all this stuff out for what purpose? That people should fear Him. That's why, that's why this is happening. That's why there's, there's, there's a, a time to kill, a time to heal. That's why there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. That's why there's a time to, to embrace and a time to shun embracing and all the goods and the bads and the ups and the downs, the hills and the valleys, the, the, the pits and the mountaintops, right? This is all that, that people would fear God. And rather than foolishly fight against the plans of your creator and your controller, you might as well humbly respect and submit him, submit to him. And, and so realizing that you can't explain what God has ordained for your life, nor can you change what God has ordained for your lives, man, you should just fall on your face before God. See, that's the choice. You can either, you can either say, okay, God, if that's the way you're going to be, and you just you spend your life fighting God. Fighting his plan for your life, right? He, he, the fact that he created you and he, the way he made you. And you wish you were different and, 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 and you wish you weren't in the body that you're in and you fill in the blank, right? You're fighting against your creator. You're fighting against the guy who's controlling you. And, and so you can either fight against him or you can do what he intends ultimately and that is for you to fear him. You can fight him or you can fear him. He said, well, what does it mean to fear him? Does that mean we're like supposed to cringe in fear of our creator? No, this is literally to be in awe of him, to be in awe of God and say, God, you are amazing. You are the creator of everything and you are the controller of everything. That is so amazing that you made everything and that you control everything and nothing can thwart your will. And you're thinking, you know what, I, I want to be, be in a relationship with this God, right? I, wanna, I don't want to fight this guy. I don't want to run from this God, right? I don't want to avoid him, act like he doesn't exist. No, I want a relationship with this God, this creator, this controller who's so magnificent, so powerful, so sovereign, and who loves me enough to even put an empty piece, build me with an empty piece, right, that only he would fit. Only he could fill. That's how much he loves me. I want to have a relationship with that God. I'm going to commit my entire life to trust him and believe in him and follow him and obey him. And so, like I said, you, you, you have one of two alternatives in life. You can either live in the fear of God or you can fight God, which really just leads to frustration. 
I mean, you can, you can either live in the fear of God or you can just live in frustration. It's your choice. And the reason why a lot of you might be living in frustration, right, you're just frustrated about your life, is because you're not fearing God. You're not standing in awe of God. And humbling yourself before Him and just submitting to Him. And that's why you're frustrated. You want to stop being frustrated? Fear God. It's the solution to being frustrated with your life, the way it is, right? Verse 15, that which has been already and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what is passed by. You're like, say that again. That which has already been has been already and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. It appears on the surface that, it, that Solomon is just kind of going back to what he said in chapter 1 in those opening verses that life is kind of this vicious cycle, right? What, come, what goes around comes around. But I think what he's saying here is that God is so committed to working that men should fear him, verse 14. He's so committed to getting you to fear him, to get me to fear him, to stand in awe of him, and not to live in frustration, not to waste the gift of life he's giving us by being frustrated with it. He's going to continue to bring the same things, the same kinds of things into our lives so that we would learn the lesson, right, that he wants us to learn. And it may have to be the same. You say, why, am, why, am I, why is this happening again in my life? Well, probably because you didn't get it the first time, right? So God continues to use the same thing over and over again as long as it takes for you to learn the lessons he wants you to learn. And the ultimate lesson is, listen, fear me. Stand in awe of me. And so we need to look within, right, to the eternity in our hearts. We need to look up at God, the sovereignty of God. But thirdly, the third perspective here is we need to look ahead at the certainty of death. Look ahead at the certainty of death. And, and what happens here in verses 16 through 22 is that it, 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 it Solomon addressed what appeared to him at the time as an exception to the rule of God's perfect providence, right? He's talking about, hey, God is God's providence. Is, he controls all of life, right? There's nothing we can change about it. We won't be able to explain it. But God is, is, is providentially working out his will in the universe and in our lives, and he says, but there was an exception in my mind. How can God be in control when there's so much evil in the world? Right, that's a classic argument, isn't it? Well, how, how can there be a God if there's so much evil? Well, how come the wicked are prospering in their sin and the righteous are suffering in their obedience? How can, that, how can God be in control? That doesn't make any sense. If God is in control, that stuff shouldn't be happening, Right? But even in this apparent contradiction, what Solomon is saying here is that God is working out his sovereign purposes even in the injustices and the inequities that we experience in our lives. George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, he experienced a lot of injustices, right? A lot of inequities. It, I mean, he got a raw deal, right? And he, he, got the, 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 he got a lot of things... He got, he got bad deals in lots of, lots of situations. He came up with a short, uh, right? What do you call that thing? A wishbone, right? He came up with a short, 
straw, short end of the bargain. Look at verse 16, interesting. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. So he was looking for justice in the places where there should be justice, i.e. like the court systems, right? You're like, hey, if you're going to find justice anywhere, it's going to be in the court system. It's all about helping people find justice. And yet, where is the place where you see the most injustice? In the court systems. That's what he's saying. It doesn't make any sense. Verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. So Solomon's like trying to think, figure this thing out and he's like, you know what? Bottom line, I know that, that there has to be a time when God will judge men. There has to be. The, the inequities of life, right, lend themselves to there has to be a judgment day when all the wrongs of this earth will be made right, when decency and fairness uh, will be accounted for, and all the accounts are settled. And so his point is, listen, I know God's not ignoring this. He's not ignoring this injustice or these inequities. He has a future purpose for it and even a present purpose for it. But ultimately, he will judge, whether it's in this earth, right, in our lifetime or in eternity, he will judge the injustices and inequities of life. He, he mentions this um, later on in chapter 11, verse 9. He says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and your heart, let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. Follow the impulse of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to what? Judgment for all these things. Chapter 12, the last verse. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So the point is, hey, listen, I, I know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to accept, but I know that, you know, there will be a, a, a payday someday, right? And in the meantime, while we're waiting for God's justice to make right these injustices, perhaps God is allowing all this to continue, these injustices and these inequities, to show us that despite our intelligence right, as we are the primary um, species, right, human beings, that really when it comes down to it, we're no better than animals. <laughs> After all, in the end, we're no different. Look at what he says in verse 18. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. I mean, he's just exposing our beastliness, our viciousness, that we can be like animals, when it comes to interacting with one another. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Well, we know, right? He was speaking to himself. Notice verse 18. This is very important because you think, well, there you go. We're no better than the animals. We all have the same fate, right? And we can draw some theology, we think, from about the afterlife of animals and, and humans from this verse. No, no, no. Time out. Don't go there, right? Because notice he says in verse 17, I said to who? Myself. 
I said to myself, I said in my heart. This is not what God had revealed to him, but what he concluded in his own mind. And so the point is, human reasoning apart from divine revelation, that's a scary place, right? You come up with all sorts of wacky conclusions. So this is not a passage where we can build doctrine of, of death and the afterlife. I mean, it, what is, his point is, listen, when we die, we return to dust just like animals do. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean we are animals with no immortal souls, right? We know the scriptures talk about that we are made in the image of God. doesn't say that about the animals, right? The one thing that sets us apart from the animals is that we have an eternal soul. They don't. The Bible doesn't say anything about animals living after death, right? Sorry, you dog lovers and pet lovers thinking, I'm going to see, you know, Misty up in heaven or wherever it is, right? That may be true, okay? The Bible just doesn't say anything about that. But apparently there are horses in heaven, right? Because we're going to be riding them when we come back, right? So it'll be interesting to see. But, but the point is when we leave God out of our lives... We, we're, we're animal-like, and, and his point is, listen, the de- death is the great leveler, even to the point that it puts man and beast on the same level. I mean, just from a human perspective, you see a dead man, and you see, see a dead dog, there's no difference. They're both dead, right? No more life. And uh, you wouldn't know that there was any difference in their eternal destiny But again, thankfully, we're not sitting here reasoning to ourselves, right, like Solomon was. We have the revelation of God, which is very clear that when a believer dies, right, our soul immediately goes to be with Christ in heaven. We know that from 2 Corinthians 5.8. Paul talks about whether at home or absent, right? It wasn't like whether at home or absent or in purgatory, right? There's only two options. You're either at home in the body, or you're absent from the body. Those are only two, only two options. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, 23, Paul talks about he couldn't, he couldn't decide whether he wanted to, to, to stay and live longer and minister, right, to the Philippians, or if he wanted to die, because he knew death would mean instant heaven, right? Instant heaven. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. Let me just read that. Give you some hope here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. For to, me to live, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. In other words, he wouldn't be like, you know, I can't decide. Should I stay here or should I go to purgatory? He wasn't, he wasn't making a decision between life here on earth and, and some holding tank, right? Where he had to wait to get to heaven. No, he was going to be instantly in the presence of of the Lord. Well, we don't have time to get into all that, but let's look at verse 22, and we'll wrap this up. He says, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who would bring him to see what will occur after him? Again, just returning to this whole theme, that listen, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, when you, when you get this, when you have this perspective of life, that, you know what, just, just be happy. You know, the guys on Duck Dynasty aren't too far off. Happy, 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 right? That, I mean, come on, enjoy your life. Be satisfied. 
Find satisfaction in accepting what you cannot change in your life. Wow, that'll hurt, right? Find satisfaction in accepting God's plan for your life, right? Which sometimes you can't explain and you cannot change. Find satisfaction in that instead of getting mad at that, getting frustrated at that. Enjoy life. Be satisfied with what God has given you in life, both good and bad, rather than spending your life frustrated by what He hasn't given you, rather than wasting your your entire existence wishing you were married to someone else, or working somewhere else, or living somewhere else. Be satisfied with what God has sovereignly ordained for your life. Enjoy God's gifts to you, knowing that God is in control. And by submitting to his sovereign plan for your life, you can experience peace and rest. Listen, beloved, life is not perfect. So you might as well make the best of it. Amen? Make the best of it. Life is all about perspective, is it not? And everything in life just comes down to how we view it. And I think the message of this chapter is that we need to view life as everything that comes to us is from a wise, good father, even though the circumstances that he ordains for our lives may bring us pain, as well as pleasure, we should rejoice that in the midst of the pain, there is possibility of pleasure. Amen? In the midst of the pain, there's possibility of pleasure. I think most of you probably heard that a tragedy happened in the body of Christ this last week, that Rick Warren, probably one of the most well-known pastors in America, His youngest son um, took his life, a gunshot. Um, Just a sad, sad situation and appreciated so much the letter um, that, that Rick Warren wrote to his church body and just said, we've been through lots of difficult days with you. We've been there to, at your side, we've prayed for you when you've gone through difficult times. Now we need you. And it was really precious. And just talking about how his son, ever since he was a little boy, just struggled with depression and just, you know, characterized it as even a mental illness. I'm not sure what all that means and had seen the best doctors and been on all sorts of medications and, and um, had spent a very enjoyable evening with his mom and dad at their house and uh, went home. And in a moment of, depression, right, in that pit, he shot himself, and they found him the next day dead. And I was just thinking about that in light of this passage, right? Because that could have been any of us, right? None of us are beyond that situation, being, being so, basically losing perspective, right? That's what happens. You lose perspective, and all you see is the bad and the negative. 
and you lose sight of God and all the good, right? And um, all of us are susceptible to that. And that's why this stuff is so important that hopefully when we do find ourselves in some pit of despair, in some slew of despond, as Pilgrim's Progress talks about it, the Spirit of God may bring our minds back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And, and we'll remember, this too shall pass. It may seem like this is the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to me, and life, you know, death is better than life. No, it's not. Death is never better than than life, right? If you're talking about killing yourself, right? And so I just want to make you aware of that. Be praying for uh, Rick and Kay Warren. I know they would appreciate our prayers, but uh, kind of hit close to home, right? I, I shot it over. I wanted my two older kids to just read what happened, just to, just to be thinking about that. It's sobering, isn't it? And um, and so we need to pray for them and, and thank the Lord for the hope that's in the gospel that ultimately it was according to the, pre, the, the, the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God, right? We've been talking about the, the foreknowledge and the predetermined plan of God. That's what this whole message has been about. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, according to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God that, that Christ was crucified. He was crucified on the cross, Right? so that we could be forgiven for our sin and we could have the hope of eternal life in heaven. And that was all part of God's plan too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have that while we do die like a dog, if you will, and uh, our body returns to the dust, that we also have the, the hope that you will redeem our souls from the power of death through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I'm thankful that the Warren son, as far as they know, was a Christian, that he loved you and he, he was serving you with his life. And unfortunately, in a moment of despair, he took his life. But Lord, we thank you that there's even forgiveness for that. And um, I pray, Lord, that you would just comfort uh, the Warren family as they go through this difficult time. I can't even imagine the tragedy and just what they're thinking and feeling and, and, and going through right now. But I pray that, that their church would do a good job coming alongside the shepherd. It's awkward for sheep to comfort the shepherd, but I pray you just give them grace to do that. And that you would use this somehow to glorify yourself and to exalt the name of Christ. And um, we just ask that it would be a, a sobering reminder of how important this, this text is, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That we would just live out these truths, Father. And that we would not um, allow us to ever get into that endurance mode. But it, when we find ourselves in that endurance mode of life, that you would quickly get us out of that to the enjoyment mode. The way you intended it to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.